perfection. Refuge of the Incompetent. I am Gaul. I am Moses. I am Ted. Yeah, Moses is back. We knew that <laughs> you guys introduction. Were, were waiting for that. Yeah, that was perfect. Um, and our theme this week is Japan. Uh, we are... <laughs> Ted just made a face. <laughs> <laughs> we're, uh, we're talking about some sci-fi that comes out of, out of Japan. Japan has a long storied history. Storied. It is a long history of, of sci-fi, uh, speculative fiction, and we have a special guest today, and his name is Tom. Tom, would you love to introduce yourself, or would you like to introduce yourself? Would you mind? <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> Which one? Do you like it, or um, do you love it? Hi, everyone. My name is Tom, uh, and I think I've been invited here today because I am a book nerd, uh, and I run uh, an Instagram called Read Books, Serve Looks, where I recreate book covers. And we're going to be talking about a book that I recreated today uh, called The Memory Police, uh, which is one of my favorite books of the year. So excited to talk about it. Yeah, same. It's a beautiful book. So I'm really excited about it. And you did a um, really great job with that cover. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. So let's just uh, talk really quickly about any music inspirations. I have been in a house in Maine for the past seven days, so I have not been as good as I usually am at prepping for this episode. But I did have some points of inspiration in the last five minutes that might be music that we could play. (laughs) One of them is, I think it might be cool to play some, like, early Japanese jazz as a nod to Murakami because he was a mm-hmm. proprietor of a jazz establishment. I think that would be cool. And then the other one is to play some of the anima, 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 anime soundtracks from some uh, Miyazaki Studio Ghibli films. That's it. Or Cowboy Bebop yeah, is an extensive oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. series. Also yeah. jazzy. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, as always, Ted finds some good things. Yeah, I have, definitely have some Japanese jazz from like the 60s and 70s. Uh, there's probably recordings of earlier jazz, and I'll look for that. Uh, definitely. And yeah, I've got lots of stuff from Japan. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you I mean... worry about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, okay. I feel like when I think about Japanese music, I think about like death metal. <laughs> it's just like it's just or not death metal, but like doom metal. Like like Sano comes to mind when I think about Japan. They're not Japanese. Boris is. But... Oh, Boris, not Sano. Yeah. Boris. Oh yeah. Sorry. Uh oh. Boris. Sorry. Sano is from Seattle. Uh. Oh really? And then like and then like Deerhoof, which is not metal at all <laughs> uh, baby metal is japanese oh good it's well there's a subgenre. i mean it, in japanese cyberpunk it's I, I was reading that it was inspired by the original by the music scene in japan that the like cyberpunk fiction that came out of it originally came from cyberpunk like or sorry just punk music so maybe there's some cool stuff there there probably is yeah yeah when i was researching for this episode looking for stuff that we're not going to talk about at all um (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean we're not going to talk about we're just not going to get around to like we didn't read or watch most of the stuff i found but um yeah there's articles talking about japanese cyberpunk which seem to be more stuff like um Tetsuo the Iron Man and like mm. Electric Dragon 80,000 Volts, mm-hmm. um, which are punk, but not like cyberpunk in the way that like William Gibson or 
right. uh, whatever it is. But, right. Uh, yeah. Good place in early 80s. Um, Japanese punk, definitely. Some gauze. I, some gauze? And they're a Japanese hardcore band. Mm. I would like to say that I, um, I think our listeners know by now that we don't do all of sci-fi from a particular theme. <laughs> <laughs> Deepest pool of deepest blue shall swim to you. Morning never waits for you, shall wait for you. You're listening to the podcast edit of Last Rafi Just Incompetent. If you'd like to listen to the full show with all the music kept in, please check out our website, lastrefugepod.com, for more information. Or search Last Refuge of the Incompetent on Mixcloud.com. Enjoy the rest of the show! Speculative fiction has a pretty long and, and, and interesting history, uh, arguably starting in the 8th century with this kind of proto-sci-fi slash mythology situation they've got going on. There's this story of a time traveler named Urashimo Taro uh, about a young fisher named fisherman who visits an undersea palace and stays there for three days. After returning home to his village, he finds himself 300 years in the future, where he's long forgotten, his house is in ruins, and his family long dead. And then there's like a 10th century Japanese narrative called The Tale of the Bamboo Cutter, about a princess from the moon who is sent to Earth for safety during a celestial war and is found and raised by a bamboo cutter in Japan. She's later taken back to the moon by her real extraterrestrial family, which people like say arguably isn't the start of sci-fi in japan but come on man that's, that's pretty sci-fi yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> we, we cast a pretty wide net here we do. Pod. <laughs> okay. what will uh, the future hold well everyone you know will be dead and no one will care about you <laughs> yeah is that how that fisherman story ends like oh everyone's dead <laughs> the end sounds like good, it. good thing there's still fish yeah <laughs> Sounds like a very Japanese story. Yeah, I'm into uh, that kind of time travel story. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you love an, a good time travel story. Oh, yeah, the That's bleaker the better. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then people say that, like, the real start of sci-fi in Japan is during the Meiji Restoration, 1868 to 1912, when the kind of Western world was being opened up into Japan, and one of the big things that was happening was they were starting to translate sci-fi novels and Jules Verne in particular uh, around the world in 80 days is the first Japanese translation of a Jules, Jules Verne novel and then it just kept going over and over and over again and then in 1886 is when they officially like coined a new word meaning scientific novel um, Kagaku Shosetsu something like that Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> flawless flawless pronunciation <laughs> Um, the, considered to be the ancestor of Japanese sci-fi is a man named Shunro Oshikawa with a debut novel called Kaite Gunken Undersea Warship published in 1900 it describes submarines and predicts a coming Russo-Japanese war and then the heyday is really after World War II where this era of modern Japanese science fiction begins with the influence of paperbacks from the US occupation brought to Japan after World War II. And that's when these two science fiction magazines are started. Um, Uchujin in 1957 and Hayakawa's SF magazine in 1959. And then for the lay listener, that's when uh, this whole genre of tokusatsu comes about. So <laughs> that would be Godzilla, 1954, this whole idea of... Um, this like boom in the film industry where they were making special effects heavy films. I mean, Godzilla is <laughs> a great 
<laughs> the reason Godzilla's a great all-time sci-fi story is it's heavy with symbolism. <laughs> right? What is Godzilla? <laughs> the consequence of all man's hubris. Yeah, there's a lot of... sci-fi. Yeah. A lot of man's hubris consequences in, I think, in Japanese sci-fi. Yeah, Godzilla's the... For, well, I don't know if it's the first, but it's probably the most famous in a long line of this story is actually about the bomb. Um, right. Japan. <laughs> so there's a, a few subgenres I just wanted to mention in this world of Japanese uh, sci-fi. The first is from the 1930s called Kamishibai. It's a street theater that a lot of the themes and stories are now seen in contemporary manga and anime. And from that comes one of the first superheroes ever, the Ogon Bat, Golden Bat, um, debuted in 1931. And also another superhero, Prince of Gamma, which debuted in the 1930s. They all kind of anticipate elements of Superman, including a secret identity. Um, the... Prince of Gamma's alter ego is a street urchin and has an extraterrestrial origin story. And they're all precursors to American superheroes. Superman came out in 1938, Batman in 1939. Ted, you said you watched some of the Ogun Bat films? Yeah, I watched one film adaptation from 1966. It's pretty low budget. Um, <laughs> Golden Bat is like awakened from... 10,000 year slumber and he just, he looks like a skeleton he's got a baton that shoots things he's basically invulnerable and he's the entire time he's just laughing in this really ominous way um, <laughs> and he's the hero, right? <laughs> he's, just, he's the hero yeah, he, he this child can summon him uh, when they're in danger it, it's, it's fun it's a lot of fun but yeah, he's a baffling hero. Um, a bat baffling hero. Uh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, that's because you're not as funny as I am, Ted. <laughs> um, all right. So then we also mentioned Tokusatsu, which are these films with special effects, Godzilla, um, and then there's Mecha, giant robots or machines controlled by people, i.e., Gundam. Anybody want to explain what Gundam is? I never really got into it. But yeah, it's people fighting with big robots. <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty badass. But they're like inside the robots. It's like yeah. humans inside of robots fighting. Yeah. Yeah, they're operating the big robot suits. Like we mentioned before, there's also the cyberpunk world. Uh, Akira, Ghost in the Shell, Cowboy Bebop fall into that. There's this steampunk, diesel punk world where a lot of the Miyazaki films, Future Boy Conan, Laputa Castle in the Sky. And then there's this sixth one called Isekai. Normal, a normal person from Earth is transported to, reborn, or trapped in a parallel universe. That's yeah. a whole genre? <laughs> That's, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I haven't heard anything from that genre that I've seen, but... Yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen the, the cyberpunk ones more. Like, Akira and Ghost in the Shell and Cowboy Bebop are my three favorites. Oh, great. So when we get to our movie combo, you are going to hopefully say some things. <laughs> <laughs> no. I've seen, a, I've seen yeah. a lot of Miyazaki. I think of, like, How's, is How's Moving Castle the same thing as... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You that know? would be, like, in the steampunk world. Or just fantasy. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like a mechanized city that's moving. Yeah. yeah. Empire of Corpses is very steampunk. I had to teach. I taught a, a landscape management class at a high school for two years, and the students didn't were not into it. So I made them watch. <laughs> I had made them watch Princess Mononoke somehow. Yeah, landscape preservation. It's some, yeah, it's got some environmental <laughs> themes to it for sure. Yes, so I've seen that like six times in a row because of <laughs> different classes. Yeah, I worked at an after school program in San Francisco. With, like, little kids, and I, like, made the mistake of letting them watch Spirited Away. <laughs> like, they were all crying. Oh, no. <laughs> they were really scared. Nice. Yeah, just a cartoon, right? No. Uh, yeah, yeah Princess Mononoke got, got way more violent than I thought it would. I saw it recently. Well, yeah. this is 
that you can also go the Valley of the Wind also has environmental mm-hmm. themes. You could show yeah. your kids that. Oh, I I made him watch Avatar. <laughs> so I've seen <laughs> Avatar about six times in a row also in like short classroom size segments. So if you guys have any questions about Avatar, the film. <laughs> yeah, are you excited <laughs> for the other episode? sequels? <laughs> <laughs> That's totally a whole nother episode. So let's um let's pivot to some memory police because that's what we're here. That's what we're here for. Memory police. I have a back summer p- pack. Blah, 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 blah. A, back a hot girl com- summer synopsis. <laughs> yeah, hot girl summer synopsis. Um, so I, I hot girl summer synopsis. Um, so back. Uh, memory police was written in 1994. Tom, do you know when it was translated? into English uh, recently, this, right? This last year, 2019. Yeah. It's by a woman named Yoko Ogawa, who is a very well-respected and regarded and well, lots of awards given to her as a speculative fiction writer. Um, yeah, the, the her, her author bio in that book just says, Yoko Ogawa has won every single <laughs> Japanese award. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, cool. uh, Clean sweep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, memory police. On an unnamed island, objects are disappearing. First hats, then ribbons, birds, roses. Most of the inhabitants are oblivious to these changes, while those few able to recall the lost objects live in fear of the draconian memory police, who are committed to ensuring that what has disappeared remains forgotten. When a young writer discovers that her editor is in danger, she concocts a plan to hide him beneath her floorboards, and together they cling to her writing as a last way of preserving the past. Powerful and provo- provocative, The Memory Police is a stunning novel about the trauma of loss. So, uh, <laughs> you guys could tell, usually my outlines are way more detailed, but I've been <laughs> away for a while, so it just says some light conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Let's let's keep it light, guys. Keep yeah. It oh yeah, light. So this is a book about fascism. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it has these parallels of the thought police with 1984, but here, this is a world where uh, the member police have perfect technology. It's never explained, but it doesn't need to be explained. They just have the ability to uh, erase ideas from uh, of people's minds, society wide, all at once. Uh, and also, it's a you get to read it from the narrator's point of view as as her mind is becoming like more and more sparse, and it's kind of nice the, that it's it's not tr- traumatic from her perspective. Like it's not an immediate loss. It's you wake up, mm-hmm. you feel that something is different, and then you realize, oh, this particular object is unfamiliar to me now. So at first, you recognize that it is now you know forbidden or or disappeared. But you recognize the object at first, you recognize it enough to say, ah, that's foreign now, it's going to erase completely from my mind. And as a society, they all decide to, you know, when uh, hats disappear, they all throw away their hats. When perfume disappears, they all dump it in the river. When birds disappear, like, it's not a physical disappearance, it's just from their minds, the concept is going to slowly decay. And Mm -hmm. eventually they'll forget that it was ever part of their lives. But that slowness is like a real poignant part of the novel yeah and i think i mean the place where the the tension within the book takes place is that there are certain people within uh the book that remember things and Mm -hmm. so they have to go away they go into hiding and so one of the the big underlying themes or um storylines is that the main character is hiding a person her editor in a small space in her house like a hidden space in her house and so a lot of it is about that communication with him and seeing him sort of withering away over time mm-hmm. because he doesn't have access to the to this like outside world. But they're also withering away because they're losing these pieces uh, of their daily life. Um, yeah. But also it sort of talks about how the, um, the main character is playing the uh, being the communicator between him and his family and how that sort of dissipates as well it's like a slow burn off almost they just you know he he goes into it with this wife who's pregnant about to have a kid and it's 
like really important and then slowly 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 all that becomes kind of forgotten i mean there's also the main character is a novelist which is why she has an editor and while the story is is proceeding you also see her write writing this her story which kind of parallels or mirrors the the main narrative in ways up until the point where novels are disappeared and then she can mm-hmm. no longer write it. But I mean, the, yeah. the forgetting in the book seems to both be about memory and to not be about memory. Um, because, I mean, while they're talking about these things that have disappeared and that they can't think about, they're also demonstrating that they, they still do know what they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, the, the forgetting seems to be more like kind of a disenchantment. Like, these objects still mm-hmm. exist in the world. They just don't have, mm-hmm. like, a. They become emotionally weightless almost. Mm-hmm. But no, it's interesting that you s- said that um, the memory police are erasing these things from people's minds. Because I never, I may have just missed something in the book, but I never got the impression that it was necessarily something the memory police was doing. Um, it's something they were enforcing, but it mm. seemed to me mm. like the disappearances were just something that happened. And then, can the memory police uh, then make sure that it is, uh, you know, becomes this order regime? Um mm. Yeah, I didn't think about that. I definitely, when reading it, I definitely thought of there being a, some kind of central Big Brother like bureau enforcing these for, for who knows why. But the disappearances right. don't follow any kind of reason. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the police just come by and are incredibly well funded and act like they have a good reason for everything. But all the other characters, like who who uh, you know are susceptible to the disappearance, they're just totally resigned to it. They say this is just the way the world is. We can't fight it. We can't fight the memory police. There's no rebellion. And the people who are immune to the disappearances, like, they're clearly the saddest because they remember everything and they just see the world disappearing before them. But the people who get the disappearance, like, they eventually just forget about the pain of disappearance at all. So they're a different kind of bleak. Yeah. And as far as we know, they're right that nothing can be done because, yeah, everything does disappear. Spoiler! (laughs) but like that um that like i feel like i agreed with the enforcement piece until you get later in the book and then they start to lose the ability to use parts of their body right and how can you enforce in which case like yeah i don't think that that's something that it it was like inanimate objects before and then it became bodily (laughs) (laughs) so i'm not sure how enforced I mean, there's also lots of elements of, like, inexplicable magical realism. Like, when Mm. birds are suddenly erased, they just fly away. Nobody's, like, taking all the birds and killing them. They just fly away to the... up, and they're gone. Well, no, doesn't everybody, like, let their birds out of their cages? Because they're like, well, these birds don't exist anymore, so... Yeah, Yeah, but then they go away. The birds never do come back. And even the... Yeah, we know it affects animals because when body parts start disappearing, then the dog also oh, loses yeah. the dog, yeah. use of its leg. Mm-hmm. That poor little doggy. <laughs> <laughs> he had a good yeah. name. What was his name? Don. Don, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then he already says, I don't know if it's for Don Juan or Don Quixote, but we'll just call him Don. <laughs> I wonder what that's translated from. Like, if it's Don think- in the Japanese. <laughs> I think so. Like, if it still says Don Juan and Don Quixote, then that feels like nope. an original... Yeah, but sometimes those translations are like give you the gist of things too. Do you know what I mean? All right, let's go buy the original. <laughs> <laughs> Learn to read Japanese. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean the dis- the disappearances, whether or not um, the disappearances are something the memory police are doing or simply enforcing, kind of changes the balance of how like sci-fi it is or how magical realist it is. Because um, I definitely read it as like a heavily magical realist work, though. I mean, the sort of Latin American magical realism, which is what most people 
think think of is more feels more like historically grounded um yeah like, like marquez is definitely writing about like colombia um just mm. like colombia with this twist but right this i mean for me the memory police was hard to like uh, really locate in any like time or place, which might yeah, be would it felt much more like a dreamlike um, mm-hmm. than like Latin American magical realism, uh, which I mean might be an effect of not being familiar enough with Japanese culture. Maybe it it um, maybe there's associations for a Japanese reader that I just don't have. But. Yeah, it just says it's set on an island that seems to be you know pretty big. There's a train on it, and but. To get off, there's a much larger island. The only time they talk about anything outside the island is that they say the ferry used to go to the much larger island to the north. And that's right. It. And that, it's like, hiking, you, like, the hike over the mountain is, like, too treacherous for a person to do. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're kind I thought of- that that was sort of, like, a, like a, a, a false... I don't know. Like, I felt like it was thrown out there at the at the beginning, and I was like, okay, well, someone's definitely going to do that. <laughs> and oh, then it just yeah. never happened. <laughs> well, one thing I thought I couldn't, I didn't understand. Do you remember? So there's an earthquake, and then there's a tsunami, and mm-hmm. she's telling the old man the tsunami's going to come, or either, no, he, he's the telling, old man telling, her. telling her. yeah. And she's like, what's a tsunami? And I'm like, why does she not know what? <laughs> I didn't understand that. Why didn't she know what a tsunami was? I couldn't figure out. I was like, did they get rid? Did they f- get rid of tsunamis? No, they didn't. So <laughs> maybe. But then why? Yeah, I mean, if they disappeared tsunamis, then the old man wouldn't remember wouldn't, them. Yeah, yeah. Um, because he's like the poster child of just yeah forgetting things and being totally fine with that. Like <laughs> yeah, um, he's, he's the mascot for acceptance. I there was like. I feel like there was, like, a distinct part in the book where, like, up to a certain part, you thought they were going to, like, fight back. Like, you thought Mm. that there was, like, the possibility Mm -hmm. for them to, like, make a move. And then once, like, the disappearance became bodily, I was like, nope. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like, they're just going to accept this. I was waiting for that, too. And then I realized, oh, no, this is bleak. This this just... Nothing happened, you know? Well, I mean... Yeah, like a dream, it just kind of drifts off. Right. Uh, it's it feels very allegorical, but I couldn't put my finger on what she's <laughs> yeah. trying to say. Yeah, I mean, it certainly it didn't feel very directly allegorical. Like, you know, if the author was from the Czech Republic or Hungary, um, you'd be like, oh, this is about the Iron Curtain or whatever, right? Um, right. I mean, writers love writing about writing, and this is a novel. <laughs> With where the two two of the main characters are a novelist and an editor, yeah. and it includes the writing of the novelist within it. So I kind of leaned towards a lot of it being kind of an an allegory um, about the writing process itself and like literature and storytelling. Mm. Um, like <laughs> the characters in the book sometimes seemed like they were. Like, the process of disappearance they were going through was, like, the process of the author getting bored with them. Like, an author getting <laughs> bored with them. Um, or like, like, I could imagine the author starting to write this, like, when they had writer's block and couldn't, like, come up, couldn't, like, yeah. feel the importance of something within their own work. And then, like... Hmm. Um, that definitely... I could feel that in the type... In the story she's writing about the typist. Hmm. And the typing teacher and how he, like, is, like, getting this... Absorbing her powers. Yeah, absorbing the powers of these women in these in this attic or whatever of the church. Of a church. Church? There's not a lot of churches in, uh, clock in Japan. Tower. Yeah, I thought it was just a clock tower. I didn't remember them ever With saying. a church. Yeah, With a church. Yeah, yeah okay. there's a church. Anyway, um, yeah. that felt very literary, like a writer... Hmm. very much writing about how you can absorb the story and then you get bored of it or whatever and you go to another one um yeah and i i was talking about it with someone on instagram and like (laughs) one one like they were thinking that it was like potentially about like loss of 
like institutional memory in Japan and like how technology Mm -hmm. had sort of like taken over and how people had forgotten about like what made Japan um, so unique before. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I like sort of likened it to was like this was like uh, Alzheimer's and like how one a person sort of like loses themselves over time and like Alzheimer's at the end is just sort of like you don't remember anything and you sort of fade away. Yeah. And so like and imagine an entire culture doing that. Especially the the people that do remember, they just so desperately want those that can't remember to remember it and yet there's nothing they can do about it. It's just gone. You know. Right. Yeah. You can get, you know, a momentary flash of recognition, but it never stays. It always fades away immediately. Yeah. Uh, so this is, well, yeah, that's a, that's a good Alzheimer's take. Have you, this is a tangent, but have any of you seen the, or been watching the, uh, uh, the animated short films that are always up for the Academy Awards? Sometimes the movie theaters, remember those? They used to do screenings and a bunch of those. (laughs) Every year or so I'll go see, here are the, you know, 10 nominated short animated films. And every year there was one that was about Alzheimer's and it was always, they made some you know, dra- dramatic artistic choice to depict the way this person's world is falling apart. Every single one made me cry. It was so sad. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh. a very, it's a very sad disease. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, towards the beginning of the book, I definitely felt like, oh, this is an allegory for like disenchantment, but also like over fast modernization and like modernization for its own sake being like, oh, these old things, we don't use them anymore. Get rid of them. Mm. Um, you don't need that knowledge, so um, chuck it out. That's definitely complicated <laughs> over the, like, the book. Well, yeah, because they they do, they, they almost revert to a much more, like, agrarian slash, not a, not a, not a highly technological world that they live in, in this island. I couldn't figure out how they did things. How did they grow? How did they grow vegetables? <laughs> they got rid of the, it. Was they were stuck in winter at some point? They got rid of calendars, and then yeah. winter was the only thing. <laughs> yeah, but to to I be fair, the... oh, go ahead, Moses. No, no, we got to be fair. Oh, <laughs> you know, we, we were talking about whether this is like magical realism or sci-fi, and she, everywhere you look, she is considered a science fiction writer, and this is considered a sci-fi book, so. And if we have, if there are any pedantic nerds out there that are mad that we're doing this book, they can <laughs> go hang out with. Don't Ted. start over from. <laughs> one. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. it wasn't for the like, if it wasn't for the memory police being in the book, I don't think people would consider this sci-fi. Uh, I mean, maybe her other books are much more right. speculative fiction, but I think the authoritarian police like yeah. are. A, our narrative feature that like um, trigger people to think this is sci-fi, nineteen eighty-four, etc. Yeah, that's right. what it's the title of the book, and so that brings them to center. And they they enforce the rules so thoroughly and you know emotionlessly and uh, oh. efficiently. And like several times in the book, the memory police are described and how well oiled the machine of the memory police is, and how everyone has their set of little symbols. Mm-hmm. Uh, denoting different ranks and insignias. It doesn't explain what they mean. It's just there to show that this is the only thing that makes sense in this world is that uh, there's an uh, in, impenetrable bureaucracy that will crush everyone else. Yeah. They also have yeah. great coats. I feel like the outfits made it really yes. <laughs> sci-fi for me. Green yeah. Fur. yeah. <laughs> she, that, was my, that was what stuck out to me was the outfits that they all wear. Because it was so... Um, she didn't describe anybody else's outfits, so it was like such a distinct point in the book. Another thing that made the book feel dreamlike is that the way people speak to each other feels sort of not exactly stilted, but unnatural. But I, I wasn't sure if that was intentional or if that's just an artifact of translation. Mm. Um, it feels more natural in Japanese. It definitely reminded me the way that people talk to each other, the way things were so plainly described. Uh, it reminded me of Richard Brodigan's mm. works. 
Like mm-hmm. in watermelon sugar in particular is one where it's a strange world, but it's just like whatever. There's a whole uh in watermelon sugar also has the outside world of forgotten works. Right. Kind of very very tangentially related. Uh and coincidentally he also wrote kind of a memoir of called the Tokyo Montana Express where in the seventies he spent half his time in Tokyo. Yeah, I love Brodekin stuff. <laughs> yeah, this same dreamlike quality in this book, I thought. Yeah, I meant to bring up uh, All Watched Over by Machines of Love and Grace when we were talking about Robogenesis, but mm-hmm. I plum forgot. Bring it up now. <laughs> oh, you <Nope>. just did. <laughs> <laughs> the time has passed. So, so one of the things I was thinking about while I was reading this book, like I think the only thing that felt somewhat comparable is Murakami's work. Yeah. And we're going to talk about Murakami after this. Yeah. But I felt like their way about going about stories is totally opposite. And Murakami is sort of what you might expect with like a weird twist. And mm-hmm. hers was not at all what you expect. Like his, his approach to, to science fiction or speculative fiction is much more like driven by this like sort of swashbuckling hero. Mm-hmm. Um, and hers is, was the opposite of that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There are no buckles swashed in this book. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, the protagonist almost feels like she she needs the old man to help her all the time, you know, like she doesn't she doesn't feel like a hero. Um, even though in, in many sense she is. Mm. And there's a very pretty love story. I thought that was kind of beautiful. I mean it's, although it's complicated. Like complicated. she's kind of <laughs> She's kind of saving this guy from the memory police, but she's also kind of imprisoning him in a little box in her yeah. room, like which is she's sort of doing to him what the yeah. uh, antagonist is doing to the protagonist in the in Story the novel she's writing. She's writing yeah. Yeah. At the end, he's like one of the people who doesn't disappear, so presumably he just walks out into this world where it's snowing all the time. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Unless the disappearance of calendars disappeared. <laughs> yeah, did everything unclear. reappear? Yeah, it's unclear. All the people that survived, if there were other people that survived, did they well, there, come back there to was it? When, when uh, people's legs disappear, which is to say they know, you know, they just feel like it's a hunk of flesh they have to carry around. But they see the memory police going and the memory police are not stumbling. So what does that mean? So she said, that's what I couldn't figure out. Because I also was like, what does that mean? So one of the things she said was, it is almost like they anticipated this and they practiced it. And so they like knew to mm. learn how to walk differently. So she says that at one point. But then when other parts were disappearing, she says that the memory police kind of just like stop enforcing things cause it, because they don't need to anymore. Mm. So I couldn't tell if things affected the memory police or not. Yeah, one of the many things that's just left kind of ambiguous. A ambiguous. nicely ambiguous book, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's and we have, pretty. like, no idea what they're, like, why. Yes. Yeah, like, why are these disappearances it, happening? Why do they want to do this? <laughs> yeah. And they're seemingly random, too. Like, why do the yeah. memory police want to get rid of lemon candies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whether they're creating the disappearances or just enforcing them, there's no clear reason that it would be of advantage, any advantage to them or anyone else. Yeah, you so, get it like five a Five stars. Small... Read it, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> if you're looking oh, yeah. for an ambiguous late summer read, we recommend The Memory Police. <laughs> mentioned uh, Haruka Murakami earlier. He was born in 1949. He's a Japanese author, translator, and former jazz bar proprietor. He's uh, inspired by a lot of Americana. And Moses, inspired by a lot of Richard Brodigan, as well as Mm -hmm. Moses, another fan of yours, absurdist sci-fi of Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, I've read not too much, but one of my favorite books of all time is Kafka on the Shore. Uh, which is a really, really beautiful book by by Murakami. And cats? Cats make a really uh, important pr- feature yeah, prominently. Yeah, a lot of uh, <laughs> themes that come up again and again in his books. Themes and symbols. Or, you know, they don't have to be symbols. Themes and objects. 
cats, ear fetishes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> ear running, right? Didn't he write a whole book about running? And yeah, he has some nonfiction books, and that one is just a book about how he likes running. Apparently yeah. it's very good. I don't like running, so I won't read it. <laughs> I also feel like there's some like themes in the structures of his book. Like, he loves a story that follows several people that are seemingly seemingly have nothing in common yes. and like slowly bringing them together like that's his his favorite yeah. thing to do it seems that's very kafka on the shore is just like that yeah there's a character yeah iq84 oh that's his most recent one right that's enormous right have yeah, you read that really well. <laughs> i did yeah did you like it four out um, of five <laughs> i don't i would give it three out of five on the Murakami scale. <laughs> yeah. It was too yeah. long. Yeah, more, I mean, Murakami is, yeah, this guy who loves baseball because it's boring and jazz. And I be- believe I remember reading that um, he, at least with his early works, I don't know if he still does this, but he would write the books in English and then translate them back oh, into yeah. Japanese. Yeah, he's a um, translator too. He's an English to Jap- like he's translated a lot of books. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Carver. Muscles, yeah, and so he's this. You know, he's the Japanese author that people know in yeah. the U.S. and I think also like around the world. When I was in Norway, for some reason, like everyone I knew was reading One Q eighty four, which I believe that translation won like the World Translation Award that year but, he doesn't um, translate his own works yeah yeah but yeah, i mean he's the he's that. the japanese author people know um but i think like within japan some critics see him as very un-japanese and he's definitely has this kind of like orientation towards america and the english language um yeah. presumably plenty of japanese authors don't so it was kind of interesting um reading this other japanese author who i guess hasn't been as translated much and into English yeah. and isn't as well known here. And it still felt pretty similar or there were definitely, yeah. you know, moods that were similar. This memory police kind of reminded me of, um, half boiled wonderland at the end of the world. Is that the one? Yeah. Hard boiled wonderland mm-hmm. at the end of the world, um, which has like cities inside this guy's dreams, um, out there, like a magical realism kind of thing. I haven't read as many of his novels, so I don't know if they're all kind of magical realism, have that magical realism. Uh, One or two them. little things. I've read most of his short stories, and uh, uh, the collection After the Quake, set in Tokyo, uh, has, you know, UFOs, and there's like a super frog who comes to, mm-hmm. re- superhero frog guy who comes to help mm-hmm. out, but this bank manager or whatever, and... Uh, only the bank manager can see him, so it's kind of weird. Like, Come on, you gotta help me stop the next earthquake. He's like, alright, but I gotta fill out all this paperwork. <laughs> there's a lot of great characters, like in Kafka on the Shore. There's like Captain Morgan, right, is a character? There's a Colonel Sanders. It's Colonel Sanders. <laughs> no, but there's no, but there's another one. Oh, and Johnny but, Walker. Johnny Walker. Johnny Walker. <laughs> Johnny Walker and Colonel. Wow. Yeah, you can see there's the the Americanism is really big there. He he writes also a lot about um Well Colonel like, Sanders is big in Japan in his own right. <laughs> yes, he is, yeah. He writes a lot of his themes are um are about World War Two or the effects of World War Two on people um afterwards. And that's pretty prominent in Kafka on the Shore. <laughs> Uh, here's a quote the, uh, when he's talking to this interviewer he says the last time we did an interview was 10 years ago and many important things have happened to me in those 10 years for instance I got 10 years older so <laughs> <laughs> the the way he interviews sound almost like the way he writes because <laughs> that's a very oh, yeah. you could yeah can I share my favorite quote from that interview yeah uh, so he, he talks in that book about how or in the interview about how, uh, you know, he had a few books out in Japan and they were more successful internationally. So he said, all right, I'm going to take some time to just travel the world if, if Japan doesn't like my books. Uh, and he does. And then two serious tragedies happen in Japan. One, a big earthquake in Kobe, where he was born. 
Uh, and then just a couple months later, this is 1995, a couple months later, the sarin gas attack in the subway. Uh, and those things in this interview says kind of inspired him to get back to Japan, especially because, you know, they were so personal. Uh, and he wrote the book Underground, which is nonfiction. It's, it's a reported journalism. Like, he interviewed all people that were in that subway. Uh, hmm. And so I thought that was interesting. And then at the end of this interview, he says... Um, or, yeah, the interviewer says, so, yeah, after those traumatic events, you, you know, you felt like you want to go back to your home country, Japan. He says, yeah, I should go home and see if there's something I could do, you know, for the people, not for the country, not for the nation, not mm. for the society, but for my people. And the interviewer says, well, what's the difference between those two things, the country and the people? Well, people buy my books. The country doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> the Japanese government has never bought a single copy of one of my novels. Um... Yeah, yeah. Even that, even that, not just the government, but just well, the idea of a country didn't buy my books. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of these quotes you picked out feel like the way that David Byrne talks in that video <laughs> <Yeah>. promoting uh, <laughs> "Stop Making Sense," where he's interviewing himself. Yeah. Um, oh yes. Oh my God. <laughs> the, so the, this quote is my favorite, where she's asking him. Um, you, you said once that your life stream was to sit at the bottom of a well. You've had a number of characters do exactly that. There's a character in Killing Commendatore Menchiki who does it. Why? And he says, I like wells very much. I like refrigerator refrigerators. I like elephants. There are many things that I like. When I write about the things I like, I'm happy. When I was a kid, there was a well at my house, and I always looked into that well, and my imagination grew. There's a short story about Raymond Carver about falling into a dry well. I love that story very much. Yeah, that's anyway. so David Byrne. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, have they hung out? David Byrne and Hiroshima Kami? They must have at some point. David Byrne wrote a book about biking. They yeah, combined. Yeah. yeah, did he steal... Maybe they like, uh, ran and biked together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Title. <laughs> I'd, I'd write that fan fiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ted, I just, I, we walked over that, Ted, but that was an incredible David Byrne impression. Thank you. Wait, what? Do it, do it again. <laughs> well, now it's not going to be good if I have to do it again, but, um. It was too, yeah. Keep up, Faruqi. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. A good yeah. David Byrne impression has to be offhand. Yeah. This is my impression of David Byrne riding a bicycle with Haruki Murakami <laughs> jogging alongside him. I think it would go a little something like this. Uh,. He also so he so he's really into cats, but my favorite part about him being into cats is that he doesn't own any cats. So he's like the interview is talking to him, and he's she's like, "Oh, you like you like music?" And he's like, "Yeah, music keeps me healthy. Music and cats they have helped me a lot." And she's like, "How many cats do you have?" Oh, none at all. I go jogging around my house every morning, and I regularly see three or four cats. They're friends of mine. I stop and say hello to them, and they come to me. We know each other very well. That is like. Kafka on the shore. That is literally what happens, which is a nice thing. You gotta write. What also, you that know. that quote reminded me of uh, another David quote. David Lynch, the director, where he's being interviewed and he's he says he used to have a bunch of what was it stuffed animals of not Woody Woodpecker, some other cartoon camera cartoon character. Uh, Happy Lippy. What? And uh, I don't think so. I think it was a bird. And yeah. David Lynch says, yeah, I used to talk to them all the time and, you know, I'd get a lot of ideas from our conversations. <laughs> and, and the universe says, well, where are they now? I'm like, oh, we're not on speaking terms. <laughs> <laughs> they died. Um. <laughs> Another spot on it. That was a really good David Lynch impression. <laughs> My David Lynch impression is just based on uh, watching that video where he shows you how to cook broccoli. A lot. <laughs> I love his uh, his weather his weather forecasts every day. Yeah, we're in LA and it's eighty three degrees and sunny. Have a great day. All right, that's it. Uh, I think I think there's plenty overlap in these worlds of these two Davids, David Lynch. David Byrne, Haruki David Murakami, Murakami. Of, <laughs> David Murakami. Yeah, Haruki is uh, the Japanese form of David, 
Yeah. Yeah, they they all kind of have a certain, I don't know, uncanny normality to their works. <laughs> yeah, abs- an absurdism. Along a certain spectrum of creepiness. so um we we were originally ambitious and we're gonna watch some some films and unfortunately the world decided to catch on fire catch on fire the world being california for me yeah (laughs) for for moses and for gall she is in a house full of I was just about to do the real world thing. Because um, <laughs> how many people were on the road? There was there's seven people here. Seven Six strangers. strangers. <laughs> yeah. You didn't come to this cabin to make friends. Because they were already your friends. Yeah. Exactly. I came here to make podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um but there were two movies that Ted did watch. And um one of them called Library Wars and the other one Empire of Corp- Corpses. And uh, when we were texting about this, we were like, maybe we'll say them as recommendations. And Ted was like, I don't know if I recommend them, but I can tell you why they're so weird. So, <laughs> um. uh, yeah. Well, so when I was trying to do some preparatory research for this show, uh, deciding like what we'd be talking about, I was looking for like sci-fi awards in Japan, like equivalents of the Hugo Award or what have you, and. A lot of the, like, there are definitely awards for, like, sci-fi short stories, none of which I could really find in translation. The awards that seem to be the Japanese equivalents of the main, like, Anglo-Sphere SF awards, a lot of them seem to go to light novels, which are uh, not quite like graphic novels. They're more like shorter novels that are also illustrated. Also, like, everything that had ever won an award seemed to have been adapted either to like a film or a for like a four season anime show. Yeah, which I, everything seems to end up getting animated at some point or another. Uh, but li- so Library Wars, there's an anime version, but there's also this live action film which has like some heartthrob from a J-pop boy band. <laughs> uh, also, the actress who's in Kill Bill. With Thurman? And, and it, it, is, <laughs> it is exactly what it sounds like, right? It's about library wars. <laughs> yeah, so it's... Um, so, in its world, there was, in the, in the late 80s, this like national censorship law passed in Japan, you know, trying to cut, a, cut down on... Um, violence and pornography's effect on the youth, etc., etc. This and isn't real. This is in the world. Of yeah, in the wars, world. Yeah. I don't know if it's based on, like, a law that was, mm, you know, okay. under discussion at the time or not. But um, And then there's this sort of federal agency that gets set up to, to enforce it. And there's also kind of this paramilitary that, like, shoots up a library at the very beginning of the film. I mean, after you see, like, a bunch of people die horribly in a library to automatic weapons, it becomes, like, a goofy soap opera. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, in response to the censorship law, the libraries set up these armed self-defense forces, um, which are authorized by, I think, what is a real, like, library law from the 50s in Japan. Uh Uh-huh. But so you have these, for the most of the film, you have these two quasi-governmental agencies will show up. Like, one of them will uh, recite whatever law gives them the authority to, like, seize books or censorship. And the other one will cite the law that gives them the right to, like, protect books from censorship. And, <laughs> and then they decide, well, let's see how it is. We'll just have to shoot, e- shoot at each other with automatic weapons for the next hour. Um, We'll see who wins. And it's Um, live action, right? It's live action. Yeah. And, like, all of this is happening while it's also, like, a goofy soap opera about this, like, female cadet having a secret crush on... Okay, um, because I started to try and watch it this morning, and I had to download some subtitles, and they didn't sync with hmm. with the movie, which is a problem. But the subtitles were, like... I was like, oh, this is about library wars. And the first thing the subtitles, or first thing I read is like, 
in every story, there is a princess who falls in love with her prince. And I was like, wait, this is about libraries, right? <laughs> yeah, the female cadet is inspired to join the Library Defense Force because um, she was in like a bookstore when there was a censorship raid. And then this brave library defense officer came in and, like, stopped it by requisitioning the books. And she, like, hands a book that she was holding back to her. And she never gets it. She never sees his face. um, But it's what inspires her. And he's, like, her prince. And then the Mm -hmm. gruff, like, the gruff officer who doesn't respect her enough becomes, like, her... Her, her love interest, men- right? Her mentee, who she hates, oh. but doesn't know he's actually her prince yes. the whole time. Yeah, yeah, it's- sure. And then, it's like, a and classic then- <laughs> story of yeah. a woman falling in love for the library <laughs> cadet. <laughs> and it's just the shift between this hokey soap opera narrative and this world where people are just okay with two government agencies constantly shooting at each other over book censorship. <laughs> it's such a bizarre sensibility. Um, <laughs> it doesn't really translate um, to like the U.S. context. But... What is Empire of Corpses about? So, Empire of Corpses is animated. It's a steampunk work where uh, like Frankenstein... Invents his monster, but that first Frankenstein's monster is the only one who has, can like speak and has a soul. So the like subsequent reanimated corpses are given this like software using these giant mechanical analytical engines. Um, and they're used for like manual labor and they're Mm -hmm. used as soldiers. So John Watson from the <laughs> from Holmes from Sherlock Holmes story. Yeah, young John Watson from Sherlock okay. Holmes uh, uh-huh. reanimates his friend illegally because uh, he's sad he dies and wants to like find a way to um, like give him a soul. So the British Empire finds out about this and tasks him with going to Afghanistan <laughs> to find the brothers Karamazov. <laughs> Who are also, like, corpse software developers. (laughs) Because the British Empire thinks they know where, like, Victor Frankenstein's last memorandum, which will somehow, which will, like, has the secret to end sold corpses. So they track him down, and, like, Karamazovs, the Karamazovs warn them not to, like, go down this path. And they go to Japan, and eventually it turns out that... Everything's being manipulated by, like, Franken's, the first Frankenstein's monster, who's just <gasps> referred to as the one, the mm. whole film. And he wants to use, like, he's using the very, the world's analytical engines to, like, turn the corpses against people. And it's all part of a plan to use their combined power to, like, resuscitate Frankenstein's bride, which was somehow. Uh, this is a very complicated story. It's very complicated. <laughs> I mean, the thing I really like about it is, like, how cavalier and almost kind of disrespectful it is to Western literature. It's just like, yeah, this is a bunch of stuff. Like, Europe, you know, whatever. Just throw it all together. Yeah. I mean, we do that all the time. uh Yeah, and President Grant is in it. Um, Like, President Grant's secret robot. Secret robot buxom bodyguard is is a major character. It is. It's wild. It's all over the place. All right. This is a pretty strong recommendation. <laughs> yeah. 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 If that sounds How good many to stars? You, then that's a recommendation. <laughs> yeah. How many stars, Ted? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to put that on a star scale. <laughs> um, Tom, you took a, a class in college about Japanese film. Is Do these sound like they fit into the canon of, <laughs> of classical Japanese films? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, I've seen good Japanese films in the past. Plenty of them. I just didn't yeah, watch them yeah. for this show. I feel like everyone... I mean, I, this show is about, you know, the edges of stuff, yeah. right? We don't yeah. have to recommend Akira. Ever, you know, if you haven't seen yeah. it, go watch it. Yeah. I mean, when I think about, like, films that 
fit the theme. Like Battle Royale comes to mind immediately. Right. Um, I think that's like the quintessential, like sort of sci-fi Japanese movie that sort of made it in the West. And they've it's been remade too, right? Did they do like an American remake? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, Ted, you were saying I know that there's a sequel. You were saying that the book is much more sci-fi in nature than the. Well, I haven't that, right? read the book. I mean, it's six hundred oh. pages or whatever. But I mean, yeah. Battle Royale sort of at the beginning of the film to explain to like establish the premise. You kind of get this idea that there's an authoritarian government in Japan that's sending children to kill each other on an island. And I, my impression is that that background premise is more developed in the novel, but I could be wrong. It's pretty Hunger Gamesy. Yeah. Like, it's like there. It's this is about population control. <laughs> like we need to send twenty kids to go kill each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it definitely inspired the Hunger Games. It inspired uh, Fortnite, the world's most popular video game. Oh yeah. <laughs> Did it really? Well, I mean the. Fortnite, that genre, is called Battle Royale because you're, like, stuck in an area and then it's the last survivor wins. Very influential. Really shaped our world. You're listening to the podcast edit of Last Refuge of the Incompetent. If you would like to listen to the full show with all the music kept in, check out our Mixcloud. Go to lastrefugepod.com for more information. Enjoy the rest of the show! Uh, you know, if we didn't cover your favorite Japanese sci-fi, you know, <laughs> anime, book, movie... Or video game. There are a lot of great sci-fi video games coming out of yeah. Japan. Does Katamari count? Why not? <laughs> I don't game. know. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> uh, it's the game where, uh, like, the king of outer space... Um, uh, yeah, king of all cosmos. King of all cosmos has you, like, roll up larger ball, larger and larger balls of just, like, random objects. You have a um, ball that everything sticks to if you're big enough, and you roll it around to... Once it's big enough, the king of all cosmos turns it into a star. Because he got drunk ah. and accidentally knocked out all the stars. We've got to replace him. It's an right. incredible game. It can't be described. Oh, you would love it. Would I? It's, <laughs> yeah. It's speculative fiction. It speculates what if ball. Yeah. What if ball. ball is life. Ball is life. <laughs> well, Katamari Damashi means what? The soul of the ball, I think, is the title. So if you uh, have anyway, any... if you have any other yeah any other recs, send them to us at the last refuge of the incompetent at gmail.com. Yeah, do that, please. I'll if play you... your video game. Yeah, and also are, these themes are ever ever changing and expanding. We can we can repeat themes if people are disappointed. There are no didn't. rules. <laughs> no, there are no rules at mean, all. No rules. Just no, no swearing. No. That's it. <laughs> yeah, or really awkward edits of swear words. <laughs> yeah, Moses, your wife was your wife was very sweary and I had to Can't help it. Yeah. The lady got a mouth on her. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't talk about my wife my wife like that. <laughs> hey, that's my wife. <laughs> Tom, is there anything any last things that you wanted to mention or um, I don't know. I guess just check out my Instagram if you like <laughs> yeah. book recreations. Um, yeah. It's called Read Read Books, period, Serve Looks. Um, yeah, and I, you can send me books and I will recreate them. So I would recommend that Instagram. It it's, it's pretty amazing, the art that Tom produces. This is a long shot. But have you considered recreating uh, old video game covers also? Because that has a very similar <laughs> pulpy feel, Ooh. like the old. Oh, old. I, I haven't, no I haven't thought of that. I feel like that's a very different Instagram, yeah. but it might be another project. <laughs> anyway, if you're looking for ideas, I can send you some shirtless wizard video games. <laughs> Ooh. Don't um, tempt me. 19, 1994 for the Sega Genesis. Um. 
Tom, thank you for having us read Memory Police. I really enjoyed that, and I was yeah, that was really excited. Yeah. Um. Sure. I'm so glad that uh, we got to talk about it, and I hope yeah. other people will read it too. Next week, we're gonna talk a little bit of of Kurt Vonnegut. Moses, you never responded to that text, so oh well. Let's say maybe... positive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're gonna do some Vonnegut um, again. We're not going to talk about all of Kurt Vonnegut's works, so don't get mad if we <laughs> don't mention that one book you like. Um. But we will be doing more David Lynch impressions. David, <laughs> <laughs> David Murray comedy throwing impressions. A, a, a Larry David impression. No. <laughs> <laughs> There, again, you go to lastrefugepod.com. There's uh, original artwork and a lot of really cool links to everything we talk about as well. And if you prefer a more uh, analog uh, way of communicating with us, please leave us a voicemail at 805-253-3091. That's 805-253-3091. Moses is back, so Moses, what a... What do I have left to say? Yeah. Sweet dreams, incompetuers. Don't forget us. Science fiction.